на трибунах холеют знамена, Облака под небесни плывут. На зеленом ковре стадиона разноцветные майки цветут. Hello and welcome back to the Russian Football News Podcast. This week... Russia's European campaign ended in what was potentially predictable disappointment as with a embarrassing but what originally seemed potentially inspiring first half of a start anyway, which did result in a 4-1 defeat and Russia finishing bottom of Group B. Uh, to discuss that, I'm as always joined by David Sanson. Even James. And of course, as I have spoiled once or twice on the pod, in partly because he's, uh, of course, Danish, and partly because it was recently the 100th episode of the RFN podcast to ce- celebrate both of them things. It's the long-awaited return of the great Dane himself, Mr. Tolka Thielade. Hey, James, it's great to be back. Oh, I've missed those sultry and subtle, subtle tones, Tolka. Now, what have you been doing since since your uh, departure from RFN and, and you handed it over, really? You've been, have you managed to keep an eye on Russian football too much? Because I'm sure some of the listeners will be eager, eager to hear. Yes, uh, I mean I'm I'm still following from the outside. I'm still listening to the RFN podcast and uh, following all the great work and all the great content that is coming out of uh, of Russian football news. So I'm very very happy to see that it's uh, it's still going strong. But but I have to admit also that uh, I have started to skip those uh, 9 a.m. games between Ufa and and Ural. So uh, so a little more casual following now and. Uh, a little less passionate, and uh, but of course, yeah, I still, uh, I still get all the all the kicks in the balls and and all the disappointments that comes with following Russian football, and and of course, as you just said, this this tournament was um, was no different. So uh, mm. it's nice to see that some things doesn't change. Yeah, <laughs> I think one of the greatest things with Russian football of late is the kind of consistency of the disappointments, especially with Spornaya now. With yourself on Toker, I, I did mention it, and as listeners will know, a couple of podcasts ago about, of course, the biggest incident and an event from Group B, which, of course, was the unfortunate cardiac arrest with which Christian Eriksen suffered in, op- in Denmark's opening game. Now, as those we all know, it's it's excellent that he has finally recovered. But Toker, what from an, more so from an emotional standpoint, what was that like for you? What the, all all of the experience and and what's happened since from from the Danish perspective because for us it was pretty haunting at the time and relieving and then actually quite hot heartwarming to see the response to it and how Denmark themselves are galvanized afterwards. Yeah, I mean, actually, it was it was strange because as I was watching it, I was. Um... I was I was Chromecasting the game and I was a little bit behind all of my friends and and suddenly uh, all of my group chats exploded at the same time and saying that he had collapsed and stuff and and I I had no idea what was going on I just saw Denmark had a throw and I thought maybe the goalkeeper had made a howler or something like that but yeah then then I saw for myself uh, what happened um, yeah a few seconds afterwards and obviously. It was shocking, um, especially as you could see in the replay where I just completely uh, blacked out. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I think everybody felt the same that it was, it was, it was super, super scary. And uh, and and suddenly, football, of course, was was not the most important thing anymore. Um, but but yeah, I mean, and and then. Uh, 
yeah, it was a, a complete blackdown. Uh, nobody knew anything. There was no news coming out. Of course, there was a lot of speculation during the game, but nobody knew really what was going on, if he had died or what had happened. I remember I watched the game, uh, the Sevilla game, many, many years ago, where that young defender, what was his name? Antonio Puerta. Puerta, Puerta something like that. Yeah, exactly, where he where he collapsed and, and died. And, of course, that was... That 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 sort of uh, came came to mind, right? But um, but yeah, then we could see that that one photo where he was sort of awake when they carried him off, and and later came the news that he was awake in in the hospital, and of course that was uh, that was a huge a huge relief. Um, I was disappointed that they started the game on the same day. I feel like uh, somebody should have been. Somebody in the Danish Authority Football Association should have been the adult there and, and looked at the players and said, "Well, clearly we are in no state of playing this game today, so so let's play it tomorrow." I mean, I know they all said that that they couldn't handle going back to the hotel and postponing the game, but I mean, if they knew that Christian Eriksen was well in the hospital and awake, then surely it it, it would be a much better solution than playing it two hours delayed and and yeah they had to substitute Simon Kerr after a few minutes because he went he was in no state of playing and yeah that was a that was a terrible decision and and luckily I mean luckily for Denmark it, it didn't come back to haunt us as, as they still progressed from the group on, on that second place but uh, but yeah I think that was that was a shame it, it has been amazing to see how it has sort of unified everybody because of course going into the tournament there were decent expectations, like there always is. I mean, people are always imagining best-case scenario, right? Um, but then after this happened, it has really unified everybody behind their team, and 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 people have been so supportive in Denmark. I was in Copenhagen, unfortunately not watching the game at the stadium, but I was watching it with my friends uh, for the Russia game. And, and when I was driving home, I mean, I was seeing... Uh, red and white shirts everywhere, flags everywhere, and it was nothing like that before the Finland game. Of course, there was hype and people were excited, but this was at a completely different level that that I cannot remember have, having ever seen before in terms of support for the for the national team. So, so that was fantastic, and of course, now after this game, after the Belgium game, like the expectations are so high, and and the atmosphere is is really really special, and and we really have this. Um, ecstatic ex- uh, atmosphere going on and and there's uh yeah euro fever for sure yeah certainly and i think it's fair to say from a non-danish perspective that denmark were one of those dark horses in the competition where obviously winning 92 they have pedigree in this and euros in general is far more of a, a defensive competition than the world cup is you don't have those crazy tactics and sort of crazy performances that some of the uh, teams from the other continents across the world bring into it. It is very much more about organisation and, and historically, look at Portugal in 2016, Spain in uh, 20, 2008 and then Greece in 2004. Uh, more often than not it is a defensively orientated solid side who can then build upon that, who does win this competition and that's really what Denmark one of the what sort of pinnacles of Denmark's game is and and it is that that solid defence from both a perspective of them working together as a cohesive unit and the individual talent on show. But before we do get on to Russia, and we'll, I'll just quickly ask Toka, what is the sort of ex, what was the your thoughts on the on the Danish squad composition? Are you pleased by it? Because it it does really seem that it's quite a a talented crop crop of 
some younger players who, like, as we'll get into the goal scorer and the Russia, uh, first goal scorer in the game with Russia, and then some real exper- an experienced core that looks quite settled for the longest time I can remember from a, from from Denmark team. I mean, uh, of course, there's too many FC Copenhagen players. Uh, that was my <laughs> first reaction. But uh, on, on a more serious note, no, I, I completely agree with you. It is definitely a strong team, and and I mean, you saw it at the World Cup as well. That that. It is a team that where the core has been playing together for a very long time. The big issue, of course, is the lack of striking options. I, th- I saw some stats before the Russia game where Denmark had the they had the highest expected goals uh, compared to the number of actual scored goals, and and there's no simply no decent strikers in in the squad, which is a little bit uh, strange to say considering we have a player from Barcelona and one from RB Leipzig, but. But but it's definitely an issue the uh, offensive options. But but for the rest of the team, the midfield is really really strong. The defense, of course, with uh, I mean I mean that it, it's amazing how many uh, fantastic central defenders we have, considering the uh, number of of uh, of players. And and there's even been some good players who have been left out on that position. So the depth uh, is really good. But yeah, we could definitely use. Uh, a large, uh, a strong striker, and and uh, I was a, a little bit uh, jealous of, of Russia, uh, even though Chuba didn't have his his best tournament. I mean, you could still see that, yeah, he's he's still a really really strong guy, and I thought he played, especially in the first half, really well uh, against Denmark. So he mm. would have he would have uh, looked good playing in in the Danish jersey for sure. Yeah, certainly. Uh, it is a nice little segue discussing the squad in general because we've been quite caught up in in Russia's squad of late and I think while the team composition for the win over Finland was pleasantly surprising considering the squad I think not many people in the Russian side of things has been quite optimistic about Stani's squad in general but we'll get straight into into the game now and David you kind of tweeted I think I I was live tweeting from the RFN account and and I was quickly on a little scroll through through the uh the timeline and I just seen one from yourself where it was what 90 seconds in two minutes in and you were like this is going to be a long night for Russia yeah I mean that that I mean I sort of felt proved wrong not too long after that obviously Denmark started very strong again just like they did against uh, the Belgians and yeah those those opening sort of 10 minutes it was it was looking like Russia was just not even gonna get out there was uh, constantly just two banks of five uh, but then there's sort of from 15 sort of through to 30, 35 minutes, Russia came out of their shell a little bit. You know, they had some chances, kept Denmark quiet for a bit. You know, Golovin you know, should have scored probably or should have done better at the very least. Uh, you know, a couple of other decent half chances. And I was like, okay, well, maybe this game isn't going to be so bad. You know, it was, it was looking even at worst. Um, and then... Denmark had their sort of first go back on the ball again. They'd had the ball for a couple of minutes and, and Damsgaard stuck it in the top corner. <laughs> um, and that, that sort of sunk the game, uh, especially for the rest of the first half, uh, from a from a Russian perspective. And and then, you know, the the rest is sort of history, you know, a bit of bit of self-destruction, uh, glimmer of hope. And then going for glory and completely getting destroyed on counterattacks. <laughs> so um, it was classic Russia, no plan B. Uh, yeah. It just didn't work. 
Yeah, I think Russia actually did match up quite effectively defensively in the early stages of the game before they were stretched and before the game lost all form of semblance of game management. But considering how Denmark performed against Belgium, which that performance has really went under the radar after the second match, Denmark were pointless. But it's like among the highest XG figures, among the highest shots on target and allowed among the least shots on target against. So they were really like outperforming in terms of the analytics, but they just couldn't get the result in either game. The first one, I'm not even going to bother analysing because I think it's a total write-off. And I'm out of respect to what happened, I'm I'm not going to bother even analysing the football. But the Belgium match in particular, it was literally the individual brilliance that Belgium have on show through particularly, of course, Kevin De Bruyne. That was the difference between the two sides. So I thought Russia's setup quite early on was, was effective. Uh, it did mean that Zuba was far too deep because I think it's the first time that we've really seen Zuba take place, uh, take a part of the defensive actions. He knew that they had to try and he had a, he had a cut back to try and stop Poiberg on the ball, and he was he was actually closing down probably the most I've seen him for Zenit or Russia at all in, in about a year or two. He, the, he works hard, but he's not a cut passing lanes closing down striker. That's just not Zuba's yeah. game. He he'll he'll chase the ball all day long, but often it's kind of ineffective and and not really in an intelligent way. But then that goal really did just change the complexity of it all. Um, I'll have a quick word on Damsgaard first because I don't want to take away the credit for the strike. I thought it was an excellent strike, and what really impressed me first was his his positional awareness. He seems to have a real keen eye for space, and he a few times and after that really started doing it more and more exposed the gap between Russia's two lines between the two midfielders who were pushing up a little bit and trying to harass the ball carrier and in the back five particularly down the left the left of Russia's defense where there was every time those balls coming over there just wasn't really enough pressure on it and I think one of the big ones that Kudryashov I think to get the yellow card or given away an early foul was because he wasn't there early enough and he was kind of too reactive and took out a Danish player. And Damsgaard really exposed that space well, and it's a good finish, but it was his reading of the game to be there already. It just meant that Russia couldn't get anywhere near him. But I will want to ask now, Toka first, the goal. Um, we discussed it ourselves in a, in a group chat, but do you think that Matvey Safanov maybe has to do better with that in goal, or is it because of the shape, because of the spin on the ball, is it perhaps unfair to expect him to do better? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we talked a little bit about that. And um, in, in my opinion, it looked like he is uh, misplaced in goal. It looks like there is a lot of open space to his to his left side, uh, which is where Damsko is, is, is kicking the ball. And I mean, I looked at the, I just looked at the XG, XG stats before we went on air here and, and uh, it was like 0. 0.04. So obviously... <laughs> it's not a goal you expect to make. You are expected <laughs> to make in in any way, yeah. but 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 in my opinion, uh, he he definitely makes it too easy for Damsgaard to to kick that ball in because if if you look at this this shot, it's it's not like it's sitting all the way out at the at, at the side by at all. I mean, there is definitely some uh, some space between the the post and and the ball. So, but but yeah, I mean, he has a lot of open space, and of course, he hits the ball amazingly with the curve and everything. So so it's a fantastic goal, but. But 
yeah, I mean, it's, it is also one of those goals that you cannot really expect to make. And, and I feel like that's also sort of an, uh, a missed part of, of the story of the game. Because mm. as, as you said, I, I thought Russia looked, they looked quite comfortable. I mean, Denmark started really well, but then it, it became very even until that goal. And, and Russia looked, looked comfortable. Um, but, but then Denmark makes, yeah, we have these two long shots with an, uh, combined expected goals of 0.08. And then uh, Josef Poulsen scores on a com- com- complete gift. I think it was Sopnin who yeah. who makes this horrible pass. And at that moment, it's it's over, right? Then there's not there's not much more that uh, that Russia can do. So so I think, I mean, Denmark played a good game, and and especially after the three one goal, of course, uh, there was a lot of pressure. But but it's not like that. We had a lot of shots against uh, against Russia, and, and I think that. Yeah, I feel like Chesov's plan was maybe not perfect, but at least it was it was working. But uh, but yeah, when when you then get those long shots against you, it's it is definitely a very very difficult day at the office. Yeah, I, th- I think the way that he's starting his set up was probably the only way that he could because Russia's massive issue in defense is when they are defending the transition. It's when when a counter-attacking team like Denmark or, or basically any any team in the world with a little bit of pace who actually play at a high tempo counter in the, in, and catch Russia on the transition, that's when they struggle. That's when you see the organization the organizational errors pop up. That's when you see the easy mistakes. If if you've got 10 Russian defenders, especially with the Kudryashov, for example, who hates getting turned, just sitting on the edge and being able to soak up pressure, that's them in their prime. They could probably have done that all day. As soon as Damsgaard scores, though, he ha- they have to get pulled out. So I think it was basically inevitable that the game was going to go away from them at that point. But David, do you think that Safanov maybe could have done better? Because I know I've, I kind of not not an impassioned defence, but I did kind of defend him a little bit on the t- on the Twitter account, and I thought that him leaving it makes it look worse than it is in act- actuality. And I think that the way that how high the ball is because it dips from about three or four yards over the bar makes it totally understandable as to why he does leave it but by the time it's in the net it's it's probably at like mid-drift height it's really a savable height so it's a difficult one for me it, it's weird because obviously he's he stood there he's like at least three or four yards off his line as i recall i haven't seen the goal since uh the day after the game i don't think but he's definitely not on his line um and I, he, I wonder. I wondered when I saw the replay from behind. Did he leave it because he thought it was going wide, or over, or did he just, just think he was just not getting near it? Because yeah, at the time it comes past him, the ball is too high. Like I don't think he's even getting there. So it's either he should be further back on his line, which, you know, I'm no goalkeeping expert. I don't know what the proper position would be then should you be on your line would you be expected to be on your line i don't really think so god you don't usually stick religiously to that line so um you know i saw i saw people fighting both corners for him online as well not just for our event you know bbc uh, just general general social media you know people some people fighting for him some people saying you know he should be doing better i'm sort of i'm sort of in the middle um Without obviously without knowing and asking him, saying you know why did you leave it? It's hard to say. So I'll give him the benefit and just say you know it's it's a fantastic effort and he could do very little about it. Um, I think he was very hard done by by the the Christensen goal. 
because in like the 60 yeah. seconds preceding it, he'd say he'd made like three great saves. And, you know, we know Russia in general produces a lot of good shot stoppers and Safanov is like most Eastern European goalkeepers. He is a great shot stopper and he proved it there. You know, he's, he saved some, saved one great effort. The ball went out of play, comes back in from across. He then saves two in like 10 seconds. The ball gets cleared and Christensen then hammers it. And it's just fine so fast that you can't even react to it. And I, I'm assuming he was slightly uh, partially sighted towards the ball because he, he, when he did react, mm. it was like it was too late. But obviously, the ball was tramming so fast, so he, he was very hard done by for that one, you know. And he, uh, he he didn't look the best when it came to the Paulson one, but uh, you know that's out of his hands. You know, Zobin just not even looking when he plays that ball back. You know, Seth, I think I think Safanov is one of the few Russian players who came out of the tournament with some credit. Um, you know, he, in general, when when he came in, played fairly well. You know, a couple of times, a bit shaky, as we know he can be. A couple of times in the air, he, he came for a corner and didn't quite get there. I remember he had a bit of a scramble on the floor at one point with with some Danish players, but uh, I thought in general he he was he was very good and. Uh, Sort of that, that was good because he, he struggled after coming back from injury last season. So um, it was good to see him, you know, become Russia's number one potentially now long term, um, step up and do that. Um, so yeah, very promising from him. I thought in general. Yeah, I thought after that goal, I mean, yes, uh, <laughs> Safanov was so unlucky for the Christiansen one as well. He. I think when Christensen received the ball, he was literally on the floor facing the other way because he just made the save. So it was pretty, to be fair to him, good goalkeeping that he actually got anywhere near near the shot considering it was hit with absolute venom. Toka, what do you think? Do you think that in the second half, that Christensen's goal, do you think that was just really the what killed Russia off from that point and what changed the game totally, I think? Yeah, exactly. That was like the final nail in the coffin. And and I think it it says a lot about Russia's lack of luck that Christensen, of all players, is the guy who, who scores that goal because I don't think... I've literally never seen him take a shot from outside the box. I read a tweet <laughs> from one of his uh, youth coaches at, at Boynbury who said that he had trained him for so many years at Boynbury and he had never seen him take a shot. I mean, it, it, it's not... He didn't even... He doesn't even practice taking shots uh, for fun because he... He just never finishes. I mean, he can. He has scored a few headers here and there, but but this was his first goal on the national team, and and he just doesn't have that aura of being one of those dangerous defenders. So, I think it 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 really was like the perfect storm where everything just went Denmark's way, and and then Christensen scores a, a world beater like that. That is, uh, of all the players, he's he's the last guy uh, anybody would have predicted to do that. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And it was one hell of a goal as well, but. I want to just take a moment to discuss because I think there was so much wrong with a lot of Russia's play during the tournament, be it poor game management, uh, attacking and defensive structure, uh, individual mistakes, um, lack of pressure, sometimes lack of effort and energy, to be honest, especially in the the opening game. Um, but the Zobodin era was the fourth, I believe, individual error that Russia had made at the tournament. But at that point, they were the only team during the in, out of the entire of the tournament who had made more than one individual error lead, leading directly to a goal. 
And that error in itself is really, I mean, I like these little microcosms that I mention quite often with games, but it, it really does just tell a story of a lot of where Russia's issues are on the pitch. Um, if we focus on the pitch here, because we don't have eight weeks to discuss the issues off the pitch, but he scans the area in front of himself and, and has a look to see where his options are, but then doesn't take the other look, doesn't double check his awareness on the other side. And on the other side of him, you've got a defence, which is absolutely and totally completely out of position. Um, Kudryashov is, is far too high up the pitch to just not a cohesive unit. And yes, Zobrin's on the ball. Yes, Russia are, a bit, are, are starting to progress in attack. But it's just really poor offensive structure for them to be so far out of shape. And it it's a terrible pass. It's terrible awareness from Zobrin. But by the time Poulsen's even in the area, the the, Rus- the Russian trio at the back are just absolutely nowhere to be seen. And further beyond that, in, in the entirety of the first half, Denmark always had what in, in hockey is called an odd man rush, where they, they would flood one channel. A lot of the time it was, I think it's Vass, is it pronounced? He would hug the touchline and would overload whichever side they would they would focus upon. And Domsgar's call actually came from an overload from the right-hand side and then a quick diagonal switch play. The pressing was exactly the same. They would overload one of the widths, one of the wings, and would press really high. And Russia's structure in reaction to that was just basically non-existent. And it really comes down to when you get to the elite level like this, a lot of international tournaments are decided upon psychological uh, psychological work off the pitch with the players and these keen sort of tactical tweaks that because you've got such little time to work together it'll be focused on and really worked on England did it really well in, in 2018 with the set pieces that was just drilled into them they were pretty much set piece merchants to be honest but that's obviously something that Denmark had looked for and there's just not enough from that at all, David, do you think, from Russia's perspective, just from the coaching perspective and and really just these phases of play where you can see real elite performance? I just haven't seen anywhere near enough of it. Yeah, it's it's the sort of a it's a weird one because you go to it and you think, right, well, we know we know the Russian players aren't world leaders. Um so you know they're gonna be able you know, uh, susceptible to making mistakes or not making the right decision. But we also know that that's not the be-all and end-all because we've seen teams who aren't as good coached well to winning tournaments, leagues, cups, etc. So it's definitely a combination of both, I think. You know, the, the those mistakes, which, the, you know, teams like Russia are going to have mistakes, um, can be covered up mostly if the team is coached well enough you know, to, to cover that. Um, and, you know, the, there's been a long, long-standing debate about you know, Russian coaching and the lack of good coaches in Russia and how much it costs to become a coach in Russia and that being the reason why. So, you know, that, that, but that's, you know, that's a whole, whole different thread to go down. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it, it it seems like a mixture of both in that in that case, um, and it's you know it's it's hard to account for you know that that mistake 
that was very early in the second half. I want to say this opening thing, like, uh, and it and it just that that was the killer nail. You know, the penalty was a you know, the rush you got was was very soft and out of nothing. But uh, even that, even after that, it didn't seem like they were going to work their way back from from there to to get an equaliser. And obviously, Denmark very quickly turned it back to to their advantage. So, um, yeah. So you've alluded there to, to some bad coaching. Now, I think it's impossible to discuss what's happened in this tournament from a Russian perspective and not question Stani Chachesov's future. It's been really one of the key points in the in the the fallout from the match in the in the Russian yeah. press, particularly. Now, he is the fourth highest earning manager at the tournament, if I if I remember rightly. He's definitely in the top five. I can't remember if it's fourth or fifth. I think he's, it's it's only Yogi Lev, Didier Deschamps, and Gareth Southgate who actually paid more than Churchesov. He's on eighteen million rubles a year, which is actually more than the official salary that Vladimir Putin himself is on. It's well known that he is a close friend of Putin. He's often seen at his his uh, his dacha and and having dinners with him, and, and is very well liked by the RFU. And it's kind of I believe, check me if I'm wrong, David, but it's it's the general feeling that the Russia, a lot of members of the press in Russia are getting are that because of this and because people are blaming other things, it seems likely that he is probably going to stay on, at least for now, or it seems that way. Um, I mean, I haven't followed the fallout in, in the Russian press too greatly. I remember back in whenever we did a pod, maybe uh, Jan or something, or, or late last year, where I I suggested that he should go or could go up the Euros regardless of the performance, just because that's the it's the signals ushering the the under twenty one generation right the generation that um, they the RFU focused so hard on keeping together. You know, players were held back from the senior national side so they could stick with the under twenty one side. Which uh, you know, ultimately that that team didn't qualify from the the Euros in March, um, and then we did see a couple of them go to the to the Euros. You know, um, Diveyev and Makarov went off to the Euros, and Zakarian was was called up obviously as well, but, but dropped because of illness. And uh, whether it happened, I think personal, my personal thing is, you know, I think this it would be needed. I think some a fresh coach is needed to come in. And take risks and, and call up the the younger players because, I mean, the squad management is is one of the, the biggest issues that I think Churches have had during this tournament. You know, he he went into it saying that Yuri Zhirkov would play every game, uh, despite only playing like a hundred minutes of football in twenty twenty one, which is at, eight, at age thirty seven, which is you know frankly ridiculous. Um, when you've got other players available, you know, he, he then didn't call up other left backs or left other left backs out of the squad. So then when Zhirkov was then injured in the first game, he was left with playing Kuzayev there, who, you know, frankly did a good job, I thought, in general. Um, but, you know, there are other left backs, more natural left backs, who could have done that job. And Kuzayev could then be utilised elsewhere. You know, Kuzayev in that midfield could have been great as a pressing option. He's, you know, he's such a workhorse. Um, and then he, you know, the plan, the lack of plan B, you know, I sort of mentioned it earlier, the lack of a plan B, Zuba's there, Russia need a goal, they bring on just another six foot five striker, 
the only player on that pitch at any time who was going to chase a ball, who can sprint and potentially win a foot race is Gordon. There's no other really outrageously quick players in, on the pitch. No other players who are going to, you know, take on a player. Um, he had Makarov in the squad, had him on the bench only for the, the, the middle game, the Finland game. Wasn't even an option to be available in the final game because he wasn't uh, included on the bench. Cherishev didn't come on. I don't know what what was up with his fitness or whether he was you know, not not ready. But um, you know the squad management is just was just not good enough and just excluding all that as well. Just not having Smolov there as, as the backup striker option, someone who can be different. Zuba's there to win balls, not to score headers, but to win balls in the air and flick ons and, and knockdowns and Smolov is a guy who could in theory under a good coach should feed off that. Imagine Smolov and, uh, and Zuba at Zenit together. It'd be outrageous um, in that set, in that setup. And as Moon is currently the guy who fills the that quote unquote Smolov spot. So um, I, I think the fresh bloods are needed. There, there needs to be a coach, whether it will be Galaxionov, who uh, you know I doubt his actual coaching abilities um, and his ability to get results, but he's familiar with the personnel at the very least. Uh, but I think there needs to be a new a new face there who's not going to just keep on calling up Shunins, Kudryashovs, Zhirkovs, mm-hmm. uh, and call up guys who are more deserving, you know, uh, and who are going to be part of the team long term. Um, because that's, that's, you know, the next tournament isn't it for another, uh, well, three years, I suppose, for the World Cup. Got to qualify for it first. And that you want that squad who's going to qualify to grow and develop and be the squad who then goes on to the tournament. So I think uh, I think a new face is needed. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. My, If I look at it from a, a little bit of a longer-term perspective, my, my, my major worry is that we have now a chance to really rebuild the team around an under-21 squad, which, as you said, have stayed together for so long, are very talented, have actually been anachronistically and ridiculously called the, the, the young golden generation a few times I've seen on Championat. Now, we can take that that highly skilled squad and, and try and rebuild. But is Starney really the man that anybody wants doing that? I mean, if you just look at the tournament itself, you had Daniel Fermin was the standout Russian central midfielder in the, in the Premier League last season. Uh, Roman Yevgenyev, the standout... Russian defender in the league last season neither got a single minute Denis Makarov didn't get a single minute Makarov was ideal for the Denmark game, Denmark have to push they're going to have to come at Russia all Russia had to do was sit deep soak it up and counter attack the one biggest chance early on was through, through Golovin, was, he nearly scored imagine if you had Makarov on the other side doing that the, the, the plan just doesn't suit one of the best players whatsoever in, in Liesha He's completely bypassed every single time Russia are on the ball. You really don't want a player like that. I'm sorry, a manager like him, who's totally tactically devoid, can't coach, can't man manage, taking control of what could potentially be a solid chance for Russia to rebuild. 2018 just merely stuck a massive plaster over a, ma- a huge issue. It was amazing. It was a great result. It was a great performance from the from the players to react to that sort of wave of emotion and wave of patriotism in the country, because that's really what got them there. It was everything just kind of collided at once for them to respond so well. And it was all emotional. It was all psychological. 
But in actuality, it, it, it's covered up so many issues that have been prevalent in the game, both domestically and on the international level, for far too long now. They're not going to be fixed. It's impossible to fix them. They should have started to fix them a long time ago. There's no national training base. There's no national elite player development program. There's no national elite coaching program. All I hear is, oh, well, who replaces Stani? Don't know. any. I mean, one part of me wants to say anybody, but the other part of me says, because they haven't put these work in years ago when they got given the World Cup, when they should have then put plans in place for long-term development of football from a coaching perspective, never mind from a financial perspective, from a structural perspective, but purely coaching. They should have put the plans in place there. And there could be stronger young coaches coming through because you always hear Galaktionov mentioned because there's really very few other genuinely young, tactically sound Russian coaches right now. But I'll, in lieu of forcing everybody to hear one of my tangents, I will pass it on to Toga because I would like to hear the opinion of somebody who is both experienced in the knowledge of Russian football, but crucially totally neutral now that you've managed to peel yourself away. <laughs> I will try about the, I will try uh, to be as neutral as as I can but yeah I, I it was it, I think it was spot on what you said about the 2018 World Cup I remember we we did a podcast back then and 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 talked about actually one of the worst things that could possibly happen for for Russian football long term was what actually happened and that Russia did so decent because that sort of covered up as as you said covered up all of these issues and and sort of gave back this belief that hey we are we are actually quite decent when there are so many things that needs to be fixed and so many things that needs to be changed uh, for the country to actually fulfill the potential um that that obviously it has with the with the history and the and the talent pool and the population and all of this um I haven't, as I said earlier, I haven't followed all of this as closely as you guys recently. But 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 I think, and and this is also something we talked about back after Slutsky was fired when Chechesov was hired. That he he is not a coach who has ever built anything. Um, when you're looking at his at his uh, coaching history, he did very very well at uh, Terek. He did very well at Amka. He he built some defensively very very strong teams. But but he's not a coach who has ever really developed a team, taken them from from something and and actually left a, a great squad behind a solid squad a, a team that is tactically strong i mean he, he has always played on i don't want to say say the easy things but i mean he has been a, a coach who, who could uh, set up uh, five defenders to to really shut down the opponent and then deliver good results in the league and then he he came to to dynamo moscow and and took over one of the one of the the most expensive squads in the whole league, and and I mean even there he wasn't he wasn't that good. They got to play some European football, but ultimately it was a disappointment. And then yeah, he took over the strongest team in Poland and won the double. Uh, I'm not saying that that's an easy task or anything like that, but but I imagine Lekia Warsaw is a little bit like coaching Senate, and and you have to yeah. you almost it's almost harder not to win the league than to actually win it. So 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 I I, I mean. For me, it's it's a no-brainer getting somebody in who actually has some visions because Chichesov and and I don't think you can blame him because he has done what he was hired to do to 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 bring some stability and to not be embarrassed in the home field in 2018 and and he qualified for this tournament, mm. but he's never a guy who's who is 
gonna develop Russia and take them to where the country needs to be and wants to be. And and I think they need to bring in somebody more visionary. I'm not saying they should go out and bring in Guardiola, but 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 of course they need somebody with some visions and some ambitions uh, on the sake of the team, and and not somebody who is who keeps bringing in Shirkov and all of these old guys just because it might give him a better chance of of drawing uh, or winning one nil against Finland. I mean that that really shouldn't be the ambition level uh, because then nothing is ever going to change. Yeah. David, what do you think about ambition? And there's one last thing as well. Um, I kind of mentioned myself a little bit earlier, my thoughts on it, but what's next for Russia? And is this perhaps a little bit of a blessing in disguise that Sakarian succumbed to that illness before the tournament? I mean, I just had a couple of thoughts. Was Did the delay of the Euros affect Russia? Because this time, you know, March last year, Russia was still on good form internationally. It was only sort of September that their, their form really turned uh, poor, um, and I want to. I just thought, just just a rhetorical, you know, did did would did that have a big impact? And then uh, you know, in the future, we talk about Slutsky there. I sort of thinking now that he would be the perfect coach for the national team. You know, when he did it before, obviously, the year of twenty sixteen was a was a disaster, but he was managing. Cisco at the same time, and I've read interviews where he said that he you know, he was really struggling with that. But um, if you gave it him outright, and you look at his pedigree that he's had, that he's developed over the last few years, um, in terms of developing younger players uh, and actually playing, you know, good football, uh, getting teams working well, like he's done with Ruben, he he had done fairly well with a brand new squad at home was 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 let go, you know, unfairly quite early on. Um, just wondered, and it just sort of occurred to me that you know, Slutsky now could probably be the best shout. Whether it would happen, I don't know, but I think I think he would be not a bad option to to put in if if you could go for any Russian coach at the very least. I would almost not want that to happen because I'm too. Oh yeah, I don't want it to happen domestically. Like I want him to stay with Ruben, obviously, but <laughs> I, I think it would, it could, and might work well if it was to, if it did happen. And on Zahayan, blessing in disguise, do you think he's going to be the central part of any potential rebuild now going forward, surely? Well, yeah, presumably. Or is it too well, soon to say? Know, the fact that he was called up at all by Churchill is, is a big, with a big, you know, honour, really, because considering how few young players Churchill would normally call up. Um, so I suppose it's all going to depend on who's in charge. It looks like he's going to be a, a central figure for Dinamo this season. You know, he's going to get Presume, you know, assuming he's uninjured a full, a full season of football under his belt, uh, age seventeen. So, uh, you know, it's a it's a promising year, and you know, we don't want to just rely on this. And oh, it's just we just happen to have had a, a seventeen year old gem come through our system, and we're going to just build around him. You know, it's Russia needs to take that and get more gems through other systems. And you know, if he, if, you know, he he does look very good. So. Um, you know, I don't want to say build it around him, but I think he should seemingly be involved at the very least. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And to end, because we are running out of time ahead of the eight o'clock games, Toka, expectations for Denmark going forwards now? I think they're going to be pretty much the rest of Europe's second favourite team at the minute after what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I have actually been quite pessimistic, so... 
so I'm I'm not I'm not celebrating anything yet. I think, yeah, obviously this whole Ericsson thing was sort of a curveball and 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 that screwed everything. But but I think the fact that Denmark has now advanced to the to the to the next round, I mean, that was like the bare minimum. So so I'm not gonna be ecstatic about this yet. I, I think we have higher potential for that. So obviously I expect them to beat Wales. Anything but a victory there would would also be a disappointment. Mm. And uh, yeah, then. Um, I mean, if if they, it looks like they will beat, uh, they will meet Holland in the in the quarterfinal, and and if they win that match, then obviously I think then there's a lot of reason to celebrate. But if they reach the quarterfinal and and are eliminated there, then I think it has been it's been good tournament, but it hasn't been anything special. Um, I, I know that sounds a little bit spoiled, but but I think it's also <laughs> we also have to be ambitious and and uh, and a little bit critical, uh, especially at a time like this where everybody are so enthusiastic and and passionate, and and then you you also have to remember to be a little bit uh, critical. But but yeah, I mean, I, I think they will they will go to the quarterfinal. Then probably uh, Holland would would be too big of a mouthful. Yeah. Look, if you could go into any major international tournament expecting and happy with early knockout stages defeat, then I think you're never going to win anything. I think there's nothing wrong with a little bit of hope and expectation. David, you have to believe that you've got something to promote right at the end of the site with a new Scout with Football handbook. Yeah, the new handbook is uh, is out now, and uh, I've finally got the chance to write that, uh, The Man and the Myth. The legend that is uh, Kvitscher. So um, that well, that was great, and I, I I was very much limited, obviously, to, to two pages, and I probably could have gone on for two more. But, uh, but yeah, that's out now. So um, feel free to, to go check that. And Tolka, your um, good luck for the rest of the tournament. Uh, well, I was going to say we'll see you next week, but. We'll be seeing me, myself, and David next week. But Toga, good luck for the rest of the rest of the tournament from a Danish perspective. And it's been great to have you back on. I'm sure everyone will be glad to hear your voice again. Yeah, thank you very much for for the invitation. Uh, I really appreciate it. It's it's always fun joining you guys. I'm a little bit disappointed that we didn't have any bizarre Danish proverbs or some form of adjective. I think Andrew listening will be very un- unhappy about that, and he he, he particularly loves them. I did them, chuckle but... when Toka said that the whole that the Netherlands would be a mouthful for Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I wish I had a witty line to think to to respond to that, but uh, I think it's probably for the best for any potential young younger generations listening that we, I maybe do not, but um, we're going to actually. <laughs> be taking a short break here at RFN. Uh, we will be back ahead of the new season, which is actually, what, three and a half weeks away, yeah, David? Yeah, two and a half for the finale. It's under a month. For the yeah, so we'll, we'll take, be taking a short break there. Um, if David wants to cover the finale, I'm just going to give him a microphone and a time slot for an hour, and he can just do what he wants. Sweet. But no, we'll, we'll definitely be back for the... Um, Conference League match, uh, Conference League qualification match in which Sochi are playing uh, one of the Azeri Baku teams. I really can't remember the name of so I can't say it either. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the end of this week's RFN podcast. Goodbye for now. Let's <laughs> go. 
Отведи его, беги, точнее его ударь. Но мяч берет ноги решительный вратарь. Не напрасно футбольное поле Самых ловких и смелых плечок. Здесь нужны тренировка и воля. Быстрота, увлечение, расчет.